Okay. Um, we're in chapter 6 of Daniel, and just as a quick synopsis of where we are for those who are visiting, uh, we are, obviously, we didn't skip to chapter 6 and start there tonight. We've covered five chapters so far. <laughs> so we'll go over a little bit of what that is tonight, but tonight our agenda is chapter 6. Chapter 1 that we covered was about Daniel and the test that they had with not defiling themselves with the king's food. Chapter 2 dealt with Daniel revealing the, it were both revealing and, and interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the great image, uh, which represents the four great world empires that would happen with the, also the pronouncement of the king, or the kingship of Messiah in that chapter. We talked about in chapter 3 about how God rescued Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace. And then we see in the next chapter how God humbled Nebuchadnezzar and how Nebuchadnezzar responded to that with a prayer of praise and honor to God. We saw last week about Belshazzar who saw the handwriting on the wall, that he died the same evening that the handwriting appeared, and that that was the evening that the uh, Neo-Babylonian Empire then fell and was replaced entirely by the, the uh, Medo-Persian. Those are, try to say that fast. <laughs> they were replaced by the Medo-Persian Empire. And uh, so where we are tonight is we're in the process of looking at where God rescued Daniel in the lion's den, and also how the evil then conspirators who came up with that, uh, that plan were also then punishment. To get us back to where we were, I, those are, who are listening in, I apologize, you cannot see this. You probably have to take your hand and go, try to see it. But uh, just to help those out who haven't been here, uh, we've, we've talked about the fact that Daniel's covers a lot of period in captivity. He's there the entire 70-year period. And the way I introduced this in the very first lesson was he's worked for a lot of people. He's had a lot of bosses, per se. Uh, all the way from Nebuchadnezzar, who really, as we talked about, is part of the first four chapters, followed by his son and then a brother-in-law. There's a lot of killing, betraying along the way. I didn't get, I'm not going to get into that. <laughs> we talked about that a little bit. All the way down to Nabonidus, who was the father of Belshazzar, who was the individual that saw the writing on the wall and... Uh, where we are now is once the Medo-Persian empires come into play, the kingdom of Babylon is now part of the Medo-Persian empire. It was placed under the leadership of Darius the Mede, which according to everything I read was one of Cyrus's servants. As we mentioned, not, might even have been potentially, they say, a nephew, which is interesting. But um, we're back to the point where we're going to end all of that. But here we are tonight. Uh, as a quick reminder... Daniel is an interesting book in terms of the languages that are used. It's comprised of both Hebrew and Aramaic. It's kind of like the two buns of the hamburger are both Hebrew, and in the middle where the meat is, is Aramaic. And we're in chapter 6, which is part of the Aramaic language. We'll do chapter 7 next week, and then we'll get back into uh, the Hebrew section. Not that I'm covering Hebrew and Aramaic, but I just thought you might want to know that, okay? Uh, I would do good to speak American English. Um, tonight, we will take a look at where we are with chapter 6, and it's a pretty straightforward chapter. Daniel's, we'll talk about Daniel's service under Darius, the plot that was hatched to catch Darius, uh, to Daniel, and the royal decree, 
And then uh, how Daniel responded to that royal decree. How he's cast into the lion den. God rescued him. The punishers are accused. He praises God for his signs and wonders, which is exactly what Nebuchadnezzar did. And then how Daniel prospered into the reign of Cyrus. If you look at the story in chapter 3 about, and I know I'm already behind, that's okay. Um, if you look at the story in chapter 3 about Daniel's three friends in the fiery furnace, this story recounts a very similar trial that Daniel faced in his older age. Rather than betraying his faith in God, he's going to remain true, and in the end, he is going to be supernaturally delivered by God from the trial that he's in. So these two stories are not duplicates of one another, but they clearly have some very important points in common. For example, in both chapter 3 and in chapter 6, at the end of the story, the persecuted Jews are saved from death by God, and the king is then brought to confess the legitimacy of the Almighty God, something that we've noted pagan kings don't normally do. But that's exactly what they did. And in both instances, a government decree will be issued or was issued that was more favorable to the Jewish faith after that. And then the persecuted Jews are almost put in a little bit better position as time goes on. But as we look at Daniel um, chapter 1, verses 1 through C, we see again in verse 1 that we're introduced to Darius. And I'm telling you, I'm going to be talking fast, so you just better put your seatbelts on. And I'm probably not going to give any breaks because I don't even know if I'm going to get through because I decided to cover this, which I wasn't going to, but I did. Uh, but because of the way so many new people are here, it's, it was just to your advantage to cover that as well. So you're caught up. Um, in verse 1, we're introduced to Darius. And we saw that at the end of chapter 5, he was appointed over the Babylonian kingdom at the age of 62. And I thought it was interesting while I, well, that was included in there, but he is 62. You recall that from our review, the Neo-Babylonian Empire was defeated, and then it was absorbed into the Medo-Persian Empire. And because of that, Cyrus put a new sheriff in charge of Babylon, and that new sheriff was Darius. And Darius immediately moved to consolidate his government, to establish it and to organize it, just like any elected governor or any elected president would do when they're elected. They're going to get their cabinet members up and going, and they're going to get them running as soon as they are installed. And Darius, in, in essence, does the exact same thing. He sets up a two-tiered system of government that's composed of 120 satraps, which are really just providential governors um, in various areas of that, of that country, who reported then to the three presidents, or sometimes, depending on translation, that would be called governors. Now, whether each president, you do 120 divided by three, that's 40. Whether it was 40 per president, we don't know, and the Bible doesn't say. And I haven't found anything on the outside that even talks about that. But one of the presidents was Daniel, as we'll see tonight. And Daniel had a reputation as a counselor and an administrator under the former Babylonian rulers that no doubt came to light when Darius was setting up his particular government. And the way this reads in chapter 6, it sounds like it almost happened instantaneously, but I'm sure with anything, there was some elapse of time, proper investigations were probably conducted. But in the end, Daniel was chosen, no doubt because of his reputation as a man of superb ability, a keen insight, and integrity. 
They needed somebody who would be familiar with the Babylonian people, the culture, um, the geography, uh, the governmental functions, and Daniel would be a key player, and he was the person for the job. And as we'll see in these verses, once he assumed office, we learned very quickly that he distinguished himself in continued service under this new leadership, just like he did under the Babylonian rule. And because of that, Darius is going to make plans to raise him up to a level above everybody else. And guess what happens anytime you are raised up to a level above anybody else? Everybody knows. We're all smiling. People become jealous. The, he becomes the object of jealousy and hatred on the part of those who envied his success so much to the point that they, de they developed a plan to pull him down, to bring him down, and that plan would eventually involve his Jewish religion. If you look at verse 1, and you talk about Bel uh, it, was, it, it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps. One of the things I want to bring out about Darius is the archaeologists have uncovered a historical record called the Dumbonidus Chronicle, which also tells how the Persian king Cyrus appointed the general of his army, and his name is G-U-B-A-R-U. That looks like Subaru. I'm going to call him Gubaru. That is probably not his name and how you pronounce it. <laughs> but it's spelled just like Subaru. So Gubaru is appointed as the official governor of Babylon as soon as the city was captured in October of 539 B.C. It also mentions that he installed sub-governors in the city of Babylon. And this text in Daniel chapter 6, verse 1, tells us that Darius set up the kingdom over 120 satraps. Now, most conservative biblical scholars have tended to identify Gubaru as in the cuneiform materials with the same man as Darius. Now, whether that's true or not, I couldn't tell you. But I know what the Bible says. I'm going to call him Darius, and that's just the end of it, all right? Uh, so that's what we're going to use. But I thought you might would be interested in doing that. But as one of King Cyrus's servants, Darius is also not to be confused with Darius the Great, who eventually would come along later and be one of the Persian empires. He's mentioned here in chapter 6 and, and, and again later on. But when you look at verse 2, verse 2 gives us the additional information that these 120 satraps had reported to the three governors who were high-level officials, and I suppose they were something like chief ministers or administrators or officers, and Daniel was one of those three. Each of them had these satraps that reported to him, and they had to give an account unto each governor of the things that were being done in the particular province they ministered. Why? Well, it says in verse 2, because the king should have no damage or loss. Makes sense, doesn't it? That's how you set, up, you set up things. The idea here is that the king should not be troubled with the daily administrative functions of government. He's going to leave that to his two levels of the states. Uh, the financial administrative processes would simply fall to those two levels. So it's a system of checks and balances. It's also a system where there would be protection against potential uprisings because there's, no, um, there's not a lot of power that was put in one particular person. So it was a really good way to rule. And then the three presidents would report to Darius, who in turn reported to Cyrus. Now, if you look at verse 3, verse 3 then gives us the answer to the question, how well did Daniel do? 
Well, if you look at that, he said, obviously, he did very well. So much that Daniel was preferred above the other two presidents and all the satraps because he had an excellent spirit in him, and therefore the king determined to set him over the whole realm. We have an expression that kind of covers that. We say cream rises to the top, and that's exactly what we have here with Daniel. He was one of the top three administrators, and as time went by, he really showed what he was worth. He really showed his value to this particular leadership. I suppose at that particular time, he kind of comes comparable to something like a, a prime minister or a modern-day secretary of state in some way. But it is very interesting and most likely providential that he eventually rises to this position because, as you recall, at the end of chapter 5, he was actually promoted to the same office at the end of the night that the Babylonian Empire fell. So it was a short reign, at least. <laughs> but they knew what he was worth, and now the new kingdom knows what he's worth. But we also take a look at the situation that says, why was he preferred? Well, the Bible has some interesting things to say about that. It says he possessed an extraordinary experience, an extraordinary spirit. His long experience and wide acquaintance with Babylonian government affairs obviously made him the ideal candidate to go into this new position. And he performed exceptionally well as soon as he got in there. It wasn't like he had to do a lot of training. He was called up on day one. And if they needed to know something about how Babylonian systems work while they are transitioning to maybe new systems, he was the man. Remember, look at the training that he got under Nebuchadnezzar as a young man, three years, and now he's been in Babylon over 60 years. He is very, very experienced in the affairs of the country, and all of this was because he was blessed by God, and Darius could see that, no doubt. And so enjoyed, Daniel enjoyed a lot of face time then with Darius, and Darius had the opportunity to see Daniel work. He got to know him personally. He observed his leadership. He observed his character. And undoubtedly, he observed his devotion to God. And remember, Daniel is not a young man now. He's not running, out running the 100-yard dash all the time. He's in his 80s. And so he's been in Babylon almost 70 years. He's worked under two different empires and as many as seven to eight different rulers. So he has seen a lot, and he knows a lot. Now as we transition to the next five verses, the six verses, we're going to see about the plot to catch Daniel in the royal decree. Um, we learned about the plot um, because just as success breeds sometimes jealousy on the part who aren't experiencing the same excess, Sometimes we see that that produces actions that are contrary to, to good harmony. They become envious of the success of others instead of what I call rejoicing with those that rejoice. They certainly rejo didn't rejoice with Daniel. Uh, they wanted to destroy Daniel. And as we will see in these verses, his own peers as well as some of the satraps wanted to bring him down. And so they set out any evidence of disloyalty or dishonesty in him. And it almost appears, in my mind, I'm used to internal audits and investigations. It seems like they were trying to do some type of internal audit and investigation to discover any kind of dirty secret upon him. But they couldn't find anything. Despite what they did, they couldn't find anything. Nothing criminal behavior in Daniel whatsoever. So they said, 
we'll, we'll get him with his religion. They knew Daniel well enough to know that he would only worship the God of the Hebrews, and they used this fact in an effort then to destroy him. And so they devised a very cunning plan, a cunning plan that, that appealed to the vanity of Darius. They approached Darius and asked him to make a royal decree that if anyone makes a request of any god or any man except you, O king, you the man, in the next 30 days, then we want him to be cast into a den of lions. Well, this puffed up the chest of the king. He didn't think anything of it. Remember, this wasn't his idea. This was the idea of his most trusted advisors, but he went along with it anyway. So, and it is interesting that they make it appear that it's the brainchild of his most trusted advisors. That's what we're hearing. And it seems that these scheming officials were well, well aware of the important and long-standing rule in the Persian Empire that once a decree had been issued, it could not be changed at all. So the king signed the order, unaware of the ramifications that it would bring upon Daniel or for any of the Jews as far as that goes. But now they've got this signed declaration, and I'm sure these wicked men are thinking to themselves, now I've got him. He's mine now. I'll catch him. This will be his death warrant. So let's look at some of the details of this particular section of, verse, of uh, these six verses. Verse 4, the two presidents and the satraps, they sought to find some charge against Daniel. The Aramaic term used there means they were seeking to find a legal indictment against him. However, they couldn't find anything. He was so scrupulous and honest in his dealings that they found no basis for any sort of damage or any charge that even could be leveled against him. It's like the initial investigation was done, initial fact-finding is done, and there's nothing that, that can be found. No hint of anything. No error was discovered. No fault. And it was because he was faithful. He was faithful in his job and handling the affairs of this new empire. And I think there's a lesson in that. We never know when others may be searching for a weakness in our character that they can take advantage of, whether it's a false lie, whether it's laying some type of temptation in front of us, or it's asking us to cave on our convictions, there are always some who are going to try to find an occasion to come at us. And why? It's because we stand for righteousness, we stand for integrity, and many people just do not like that. They seek to turn them people against us, to make fun of us, to say things about us, that simply is not true. I had an unusual experience when I was a lieutenant colonel in the Air Force that had never happened to me before in my military career. An Air Force Chief Master Sergeant uh, that I knew very well, he stopped me and asked me why ticket sales to the base party wasn't going well in my department. And I told him, well, I didn't support it. I wasn't going to go. I wasn't going to attend, and I wasn't going to promote it. Well, that just made his day. <laughs> he didn't like that at all. And it just so happened that the vast majority of my team were people that just agreed with me, and they weren't going to buy any tickets. But on the, the, the list of who had the most ticket sales, we were at the bottom. All right? And 
Because of that, he accused me of busting unit morale. I looked at him and I said, I'm not going to tell you his name. I said, I'll just say I stood my, my ground and I just calmly stated that building the morale of a unit through a drinking party was not going to accomplish anything except people getting drunk, people endangering their lives, and potentially killing others. I know that, you know that, and there are more productive ways to build morale than some kind of drinking party. And if you'd like to discuss them, I said I'd be happy to talk to you about it. I thought that was the end of the discussion. Here comes the next executive staff meeting. And we're all in there. And all of a sudden, my direct boss, who was a colonel, who happened to be a drinking buddy of this chief, attempted to give me a little gentle but pointed shakedown in front of the others. And he looked directly at me and pointed out that some people aren't supporting the base party. <laughs> and when he said that, I, looked, I was taking notes. I looked up directly at him, and I just smiled. <laughs> and a private conversation with the chief turned out to be a conversation that went to a senior officer who has attempted to put pressure on another officer to conform. Now, little did this colonel know that I'd already spoken to his boss, who happened to be the wing commander, about what had transpired both inside and outside the staff meeting. And he said, David, do not worry about that. I got your back. You see, the wing commander, he was the highest ranking person on the base. He also attended one of the Churches of Christ in Memphis. <laughs> So he had my back. Nothing ever came from that. But I will tell you, it didn't make the, uh, the, 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 the need to take a stand any less easier to do. You still had to take a stand. And so we grow from challenges. Just like Daniel is taking a stand, we grow from challenges. We have to learn to remain calm in our faith when our values are attacked. And we have to learn to control our emotions. We have to make sure our speech is filled with grace and truth when talking to others who oppose us. This chief and this colonel would judge me not only on how I reacted initially, but they would judge me on how I reacted to this particular charge. And there are always teaching moments. And, and, and I should say, by the way, this chief and this colonel, they got over it. We worked very, very well together, but the people will test you. That's just one of my stories. If I were to open up the room and pass around the mic, every one of us could tell a similar story, and that's the key. You all have your stories. You always have these places where you build your faith. You have to stand and make a stand, and when you do, it will help you the next time. Um, needless to say, you can bet if there's going to be error or fault to be found in us, People who oppose our standard truth will always seek to uncover it, and they're going to use this against us in some form or fashion. But we always have to be on guard. We always have to do the right thing. We always have to stand for truth and righteousness. We have to be firm. I have a statement, be firm but fair. We have to be firm. We have to be controlled in our responses. We are always teaching somebody else how to react to things both when they hit us right between the eyes and then when we respond to it. So let's never forget that we are to take a stand. People will notice a stand, but we be firm in our convictions and we keep on pressing. Now, back to the story. Verse 5. 
When we see in verse 5, they could not find any weakness in his character or in his manner of carrying out his government affairs. Now they turn to attack his religion. And apparently they knew of his practice of praying three times a day. And they thought that since Daniel, and notice this, since Daniel would always choose to follow this path no matter what the king decreed, that would be the thing that would bring him down. If they could just get the king to place his stamp of approval upon a royal order that they could force Daniel to either defy the king's law or violate his conscience, then they knew that they could get to his under his skin and watch him fall. And then we get to verses 6 and 7, all right? When we look at verses 6 and 7, they come to the king with their plan. No doubt there was some collusion on their part, but I call this, these two verses, the big lie. They approached the king, and notice what they, says in, they said in verse 7. All the governors of the kingdom, the administrators, the satraps, the counselors, advisors, have consulted together to establish a royal statute to make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days, except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions." What was the big lie? Well, they said all of the presidents and all of the governors of the kingdom agreed with this decree. Did they ask Daniel that? No. <laughs> so it was a misrepresentation. Matter of fact, my, my part of this is if they can misrepresent that, then they probably misrepresented everybody else that they claim was on their side as well. If you're going to lie about one thing, you can lie about the other. They're just simply trying to give the impression of some kind of widespread consensus among all the government officials and that this edict ought to be issued, and that certainly was the biggest lie. As far as the chosen method of punishment goes, they introduce us to the big cats, the lions. Uh, I was going to say big dogs, but then I realized, no, it's not dogs, it's cats. The big lions. And they're not going to shoot people. They're not going to hang people. They're not going to put arrows through people. They think that if you're guilty, you need to go to the lions. How does that sound to you, Darius? I think it sounds pretty good. And they wave the piece of paper in front of them and say, only thing you need to do is just sign right here. The deal is done. Sign right here. We're trying to hurry this along. You don't need to think about it anymore. We've got your back. This is the best thing for you. And that's exactly what he did. And as the text says, once he signed it, there was no going back, according to the law of the Medes and the Persians. And then we get to these verses, Daniel's devotion in spite of the royal decree. In verses 10 through 15, we read about Daniel and how he reacted to this decree. And he was simply undeterred by the knowledge that this decree had been signed. He persisted in his well-known custom of daily devotions, just like he had always done. He didn't back down. Verse 10 says, look at verse 10. It says he knew the writing was signed. Because we may well, maybe he just didn't know. No, he knew the writing was signed. He was not ignorant of the decree. He did not fail to read his email that day. 
just like many of us might do. But he knew the decree had been signed. He went about to his house. He prayed as he always did with the window open toward Jerusalem, fully aware that anybody else could see him. And he prayed like he normally did, three times a day, and gave thanks to God, just as he had always done. Um, I'm gonna, because of time, I'm going to skip us a couple of things. And when he prayed, what did he do? He gave thanks to God in spite of knowing what? That he's probably going to be brought before the king and fed to the lions. Despite knowing that, he continued to pray for God and give God thanks for all the good things that had happened to him along the way. Further proof in verse 11 that these men were determined to destroy Daniel is found there. Notice that after the decree is signed, they just don't go and find any Jew who might be praying. No, the text says, then these men, that is the ones who devised the plot, assembled outside of Daniel's residence and found him praying and making supplication to God. They knew that he did this, and that's why they devised the plan in the first place. Now, what are you going to do then? How are you going to catch him? Well, they didn't have an iPhone to take a camera. They couldn't catch him that way, so they had to bring witnesses with them. That's why they have a bunch of people assembled there. So they all gathered there, and everybody was spying on them. But it's interesting that they weren't spying on anybody else. They didn't go to any Jew. They didn't spy on anybody else. They uh, didn't report anybody else. And nobody else was punished. This was a plan that was all about hating Daniel, jealous of Daniel, removing Daniel so that they could shine in the sun instead of Daniel. What they did not do was concentrate on improving themselves to get to the position that Daniel was in. They didn't go to Daniel and say, how are you doing all this? I mean, you're, you're looking like a superstar. You're performing so well. How are your metrics in today's terminology? How are your metrics so much better than mine? He would have, I'm sure he would have gladly told them. But that wasn't what was going on. They just wanted to get rid of him. And then in verses 12 and 13, having established the fact that they caught Daniel praying, what did they do? Run to the king. They run to the king as fast as they can. They present their witnesses that can testify that Daniel petitioned God three times a day in, viol uh, in violation of the very decree that you signed, O King Darius. And now, what are you going to do? It's showtime. What are you going to do about it? And I can just see them trying as hard as they can to hold back the smiles on those little bitty smug faces. This wasn't an attack just on Daniel. This was an attack on Darius as well. And incidentally, I'm sure there is no way they could have precisely detected whether Daniel was merely praising and thanking God or actually asking a petition of God as the decree specifically mentioned. But that didn't matter to them. They wanted Daniel done. 
They wanted him cooked, removed from the, the position. And they had witnesses to prove it. And you add fire to the flame or fuel to the flame. They didn't even hesitate to mention that Daniel was one of those children of captivity. All those Jews. They brought that out as well. And basically to me, they're saying, we're watching out for your back since you're not watching out for your back. He's a foreigner. He's not a native son like us. And you never know whether he's going to be disloyal to you or not. Do you understand what I'm saying, O king? Give me the pen. <laughs> well, he'd already signed that one. It was this point, verse 14, that he probably remembered when he took that pen and signed it. When he signed it without even thinking about what he was getting ready to do knowing the ramifications of what's going to happen to his good friend. He figured out what was going on. This wasn't about honoring or giving special tribute to him. It was a sophisticated plan that would bring down Daniel. And now they had caught the king in a trap. But, what, but this trap and this game that they're playing would eventually be a deadly game that they were playing not only with the king, but they were playing with God as well. So how does Daniel react to this? Well, it says he was very displeased with himself, not with his counselors, not with his wife, not with his kids, not with his magicians. No, he was displeased with himself, and he set his heart on trying to deliver Daniel. He wanted to do everything he could to free Daniel from this decree. It says in verse 14 that he labored until the sun went down, attempting to deliver him. And I'm sure this was simply an unexpected twist that these accusers had not expected. They probably thought Darius was going to say, he did what? Away with him. Send him to the lions. That's not what happened. He thought so much of them that he did. He, he tried to turn every stone to try to find a way to get him out of this, but he couldn't. And he teaches us another lesson. We all make decisions that sometimes lead us into circumstances and situations that we regret. And afterwards, we wish we could simply turn back the clock and change them, but we can't. And we often learn later something that we wish we had known before we made the decision, but it's sometimes just too late. Our actions can't be undone, and we have to live with our decisions and make it work out as best as we can. And so it was with Darius. He was very aggravated with himself by his own lack of insight into the real intentions of these people. They had him between a rock and a hard place. They knew it, and he knew it as well. Oh, how we need wisdom to walk in this life. We need the faithful advice of elders. We need the faithful advice of preachers and Bible class teachers. We need the advice of Christians. We need to consult what the Bible says on matters. We need hearts that are set on doing what's right versus feeding the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 20 said, Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and keep all my commands always so that it might go well with them. Who is wise? 
Who is understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. James chapter 3, verse 13. The Bible says that Darius labored until the sun went down. He strove, he wrestled, he struggled trying to find a way to deliver him. The text doesn't say what he did, but there's no doubt he tried to do everything that he could. And then notice what it says in verse 15. It's, it appears that the king sent the accusers away while he researched the matter in order to attempt to free Daniel. Now these men have assembled back to him. And they say, O king, law, the law of the Medes and Persians, no decree or statute that has been established can be changed. And you know Darius had to be enraged when he heard those words from these men. All the options have been explored. There was nothing left for the king to do but to have Daniel cast into the lion's den. And it's very interesting. To, if he, just think if he had gone back on his word. If he had gone back on his word, it would put every law in the books that he had signed at jeopardy. Every proclamation he issued thereafter would ever always be subject to challenge. No decree of his could ever be deemed unchangeable. If he changed this, could he change them all? Why not? So he had to do what he had to do. In verse 16, he commanded that Daniel be brought before him, cast into the lion's den. But before he did that, the king said, Daniel, your God, whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. And it's so interesting to me, this pagan king knew of Daniel's devotion to God. And he would certainly learn of God's power. What do others say about us regarding our devotion to God? What do they say? What do they think? What do they observe? Would our own friends and neighbors at work comment that we, like Daniel, are continuing and continually serving our God in Christ? There is no higher compliment that could be paid to someone than have a friend who watches you every day at work say that of you. I've told the story about a man I knew in Memphis. He, he cussed like a sailor, but proudly stated that he attended such and such Church of Christ. People took note of the hypocrisy. They knew enough about the Church of Christ to note that people who attend any church shouldn't talk the way that he did. His speech nullified everything that came out of his mouth regarding Christ and Christian living. His living testimony was of no value because his life was inconsistent with biblical teaching. And I think the statement regarding elders in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 7 is a statement we all need to, to strive for. You remember what it is. Moreover, the elder, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Apostle Paul also warned us about how we should be toward those who are not Christians. Walk in wisdom to, toward those who are outside, redeeming the time, Colossians 4, verse 5. That you may walk properly to those who are outside, and that you may lack nothing. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 12. Our walk must match our talk, and our talk and our walk must be in harmony with the teaching of Jesus and the footsteps of Jesus and the holy word that Jesus has left for us to read and to follow. We are to be holy people in what we say, 
what we do, what we wear, what we read, what we watch, what we listen to, and what we participate in. Because we're being observed on everything that we do. We are called to be holy. Let's be holy. Well, Daniel was cast into the lion's den, as we see in verse 17. The mouth of the den was sealed with the signet of the king and the satraps. Nobody could accuse them of being, um, showing favoritism to Daniel whatsoever. He was going to suffer. And the king suffered himself that night. He couldn't sleep at all. But, and he, he cannot sleep. He, he's restless the entire night. The next morning he comes out. He runs to the place where Daniel is. And he says, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Verse 20. Do you think he's listening? What do you think he's saying? I don't know if he's going to answer me or not. I mean, these are lions. And then in verse 21, we see the answer. After listening, he heard the most heartwarming words he could ever have longed for. Oh, king, live forever. God sent his angel. He shut the lion's mouth so that they have not hurt me. Because I was found innocent before you, God, and, O oh, king, I have done you no wrong. Verse 22. Notice what he did not say. He did not say, yes, I'm alive, you rascal. Now get me out of here. You made a big mistake, and now you're going to pay for it. His reply was one of grace and respect. O king, live forever. Daniel was a great, great man. The king had noted he served a living God, and that's exactly how he lived his life, serving a living God. We know the story. The angels shut the mouths of the lions so they couldn't bite him. I guess they also um, maybe wrapped him up and held him so that the claws couldn't rip him apart. I don't know what they did. The Bible doesn't tell us. But in verse 24, we read that the accusers were punished. Daniel was safe, but now the king was going to bring down upon the heads of these conspirators a healthy dose of their own nasty medicine. And that's exactly what happened. Daniel goes on to prosper into the reign of Cyrus. And one final lesson that I wanted to talk about, temptation. The temptation to turn away from God can come at any age. We saw that temptations that Daniel and his friends experienced in young, as young men during the training when they confronted the problem of defiling themselves with the king's food. And now Daniel in his 80s faces a severe trial to save his earthly position by forcing him to abandon God. Older folks are not immune to trials. We must remain faithful till we close our eyes in death. One final passage. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. James chapter 1, verse 12. And they want to come in, and I think I'm going to let them in. <laughs> Thank you.